right, well, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26. You might hear me say that chapter and ask, well, didn't we do that two weeks ago? And didn't we read chapter 28 this morning? And the answer to both those questions is yes. But you might have noticed that in the last two Sundays, both in our message from Genesis 26 and 27, that we left out the final verse or two uh, from each chapter. And so just just so you know, we're, we're not skipping verses, and, and those passages aren't unimportant. But when we put them together uh, with this morning and going into chapter 20, they're going to help us springboard now into uh, today's narrative. So just to refresh our memories, in Genesis 26, we find the narrative of Isaac and Rebecca, his wife. His wife, or as he likes to call her around uh, scary dudes who might find her pretty and him expendable, he liked to call her his sister. In, in Genesis 26, we, we see God's promise uh, of the covenant that he'd made with Abraham, and he gives this covenant to the son of promise, to Isaac. And God promised Isaac, I will be with you. And God was with his people, as he remains with his people today. At the end of chapter 26, starting in verse 34, we read this almost parenthetical information regarding Esau's decision to marry. So Genesis 26, verse 34 says, When Esau was 40 years old, when he was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and what looks like in English here, base math, that would have been basip mat, would have been the Hebrew pronunciation or something close to that, and that's just the word for balsam. But we see it looks like base math to us, right? But it's the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau was 40 years old when he first got married, and probably not much older when he got double married. You might remember that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, so it may have just seemed like the time was right uh, for Esau. But, remember, Abraham had sent his servant away from Canaan, where they were living, where they were sojourning, to find a wife for Isaac. And these people in Canaan, they were not going to have the land forever. God had already declared that he was going to judge them, that the land was going to be given to Israel. And so Abraham wanted Isaac to have a wife from his own people. And as was custom, Abraham took care of the responsibility of finding a wife for his son. Who does it look like took care of finding a wife for Esau? Who did this? Uh, Where's the big story of how Isaac got his firstborn son a wife from among his people? Well, as we read the scripture, it's just simply not there. Uh, Impetuous Esau... He did what Esau impetuously does, and he got himself his own wife, wives, from among the Canaanite peoples. And what was the response? Uh, This move, or these moves, brought, it says, bitterness to both Isaac and Rebekah. This word for bitterness is the same word that's used for Esau's bitter weeping after losing his birthright in in chapter 27. It's also the same word that Naomi named herself in the book of Ruth. If you remember when Naomi's husband and both of her sons died, she returned back uh, to Bethlehem and she said, call me Mara. And that word in the Hebrew means bitterness. So now after the events of Genesis 27, uh, after Rebecca schemed and, and Jacob supplanted and lied to steal 
the birthright that our providential sovereign God had already promised him. Remember that Esau was so angry that he planned to kill Jacob as soon as their father died, which he wouldn't do for another 43 years. But they didn't know that, of course, and so Rebekah put together this plan, and she commands her son, Jacob, to flee. Run away to, your, to my brother Laban, she says, the brother who had agreed to give her away in marriage to Isaac. Before Jacob leaves, Rebekah needs to work her magic again to make this all work out how she wants. So she talks to her husband Isaac in, in chapter 27, verse 46. So look there with me as I read. 2746. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Which Hittite Canaanite women is she talking about? Those are Esau's wives. Okay? And then Rebecca adds, If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Rebecca had one more trick up her sleeve at least as far as we see. This is how she gets Isaac on board with Jacob leaving town, running away from Esau without telling Isaac why. It does strike us, it should strike us. Uh, what motive does Rebekah give to Isaac? Does she say, Isaac, dear, remember how wonderful it was when your father sent for me and we were married don't you think it would be so good for our son since he's been patient and, and waited for your direction and your provision to send for a, a wife for him as well? Wouldn't it be so good for Jacob? Is that what she just said? Uh, no. No, that's not what she said, is it? What did she say? I loathe my life. What good will my life be to me? But if you say that we can do this, then I'll be good. If you give me what I want, I'll be happy again. What is this? And whether she was being hyperbolic or, or just going over the top there or not, those aren't words or threats that you mess around with. Her manipulation of Isaac, it doesn't even allow him to do what he ought to be doing out of love. He's just keeping her at bay, keeping her appeased, maybe preventing her from any threat of self-harm. And she was desperate enough to think she had to go to this length to get what she wanted. So there is our blessed update on the love lives of Esau and Jacob. And this carries us now right into chapter 28. So let's see what happens next. Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now before we go any further, yes. <laughs> Isaac just told Jacob to marry his cousin on his mother's side. That is what that just said. Uh, no, kiddos, you cannot do that. Please don't do that. Okay, and all the kids said, phew, right? God will strictly forbid any kind of incest over 400 years later in Leviticus 18. But for Abraham and Isaac 
and now Jacob, they are still 400 years prior to that command being given. If you think about it, marrying a close relative was a necessity for people like Cain, Adam and Eve's son. Who was he supposed to marry? He didn't even have an uncle and an aunt. All he had was mom and dad and brothers and sisters, and maybe by then nieces and nephews and such, right? Or the children, uh, the grandchildren of Noah getting off the ark. Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives. Who did Noah's grandkids marry? They needed to procreate. And so it was permissible up to this point. Number two, Adam and Eve were built to last. They lived a long time, didn't they? And when we go back and think through the history of Genesis, and then sin entered in, and by sin, death. And then it was by God's grace that lives were shortened, and evil was held at bay through that process. That was God's doing by God's grace and mercy. And in that time, uh, those closer relationships didn't yield, we would think, the genetic defects that it does today. Does that, does that make sense? And so at this point in time, it was, not, uh, it was not forbidden. We do see this, though. God gave marriage for a man and a woman to unite as one flesh, and one of the God-given purposes for that uniting in one flesh is to be fruitful and multiply, which also does necessitate the biological definition of a man and a woman. Uh, by the time of Exodus from Egypt, the, the, the Exodus from Egypt, when God gave the law, to Israel, and thereafter, the laws about things like, you know, not marrying cousins. Then at that point, now, this is sin. Then God had not forbidden it before that. It wasn't sin then. Now, yes, it is. Okay? It has become destructive. We see in more modern history, like I said, the negative physical effects of the offspring of ancestral relationships. And God, remember, is for us. And what he forbids is always for us. Now, we tend to desire affirmation of even things that would be destructive of us and call that good. But God is truly for us. And so what he forbids is forbidden for our good and for the good of society, for us and for others. So God has now decreed this as sin. And so in this instance, incest ought to seem wrong to us. There's a reason the kids should be relieved to hear that they're not to marry their cousins. Really anything, anything that God commands us not to do ought to seem wrong to us. Even grotesque or gross to us in the true sense of the term. Whether it's lying, gossip, stealing, manipulation, lust, incest, whatever. Even when a sin doesn't seem physically gross to us, even even when we feel like we want that sinful desire to become a reality because of our love for God, our reverence for him, and because of our love for others, our true love for others, sin ought to increasingly seem spiritually gross to us. God has called us to pursue holiness and love. So we, we still show people respect as human beings made in the image of God who are struggling with desires and struggling with sin just like we do. And in that respect, and because we desire to love them, we point them to Christ for repentance, for forgiveness, for life.
And the beginning of verse 3 gives us all the reason we need to conform ourselves and our desires to his will. The beginning of verse 3, God is called God Almighty. This is the name El Shaddai. God Almighty, all-powerful. The God who has power over all. And this is true whether we desire for him to be or not. This is not up for a democratic vote. Any poll results, they matter none. This is who he is. And he has been in this office, if you will. He is in office, and he will forever hold this office of authority. So we're to obey. We follow him. And Christian, the God who is El Shaddai, powerful over all, is also for you. He is for you. The God who is with you and for you is also the God who is powerful over all. So for the person who does not want to obey God, for the person who wants to redefine terms, for the person who wants to do things their way, the name El Shaddai ought to invoke a right fear and ought to invoke confession and repentance. It ought to stir us up to love and compassionately point them to Christ. And if you're here today, know this too. Our holy and just and all-powerful God is also a God of mercy and grace. And in his love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place to pay the full penalty of our sin. And God has taken our sin and placed it on Christ. And justice was served there at the cross. And he has taken the righteousness of Christ and put that to your account. He's put it to our account. He has made us as children, heirs of his promise by his grace. So if you're here today and you've never repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone for your forgiveness, I plead with you, be saved today. And know this, uh, Christians, to anyone who has placed their faith in the shed blood of Christ alone, knowing that we aren't saved because we're flawless, if we were flawless, we wouldn't need to be saved. We are not without sin, but humbly we know now that we are resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross for our salvation, for our justification. The children of God, we can know that God is El Shaddai and that power that we know he possesses because we are in him, it turns into comfort for us. Not dreadful fear, but comfort Reverence, yes, and comfort, rest, peace, knowing that the all-powerful God is for us. And if God's for us, who can be against us? That's why now in verse 3, as Isaac gets ready to send Jacob up north uh, to get his bride, he tells him this, God Almighty, all-powerful God, bless you. And make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. That you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. He did what he was told. And so now Isaac has just sent Jacob off to find his bride. And Rebecca, 
We know this too. We, we, would, we would think seeing what has happened here, Rebecca, instead of experiencing the pure joy of seeing her husband do the right thing for the right reason, it would make sense, right, that she would feel some sort of mixture of relief because she got what she wanted, but with this admixture of anxiety, trying to make sure everything was done just the way she desires. And without confession and repentance, the knowledge of the methodology there stays with her, doesn't it? And, and if she would confess that and ask for forgiveness, she could be free from that burden in her own heart and her mind, right? That wasn't the way to go. And yet God is sovereign. It says, but, right in my notes here, but we, what we do see uh, that is incredibly important is that Jacob, uh, Isaac, has just knowingly, willingly, not under compulsion or by any trickery, Isaac has conferred the blessing of God, the Abrahamic covenant, to his son, Jacob. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, is going to become the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so now what's Esau up to? Verse 6. It says, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, so in conjunction with, connected to this blessing, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Uh-oh. Esau's like, I got two of those. <laughs> and, verse 7, that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, meaning in addition, so this is now wife number three, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Again, who is telling Isaac to go marry anyone? The answer is nobody, right? This is just Esau's impetuousness continuing. Uh, Esau does see that this command to marry from their own people is given in the same context as the blessing. The blessing he thinks he just lost, even though it really was never his to begin with. And so Esau thinks, like the light bulb went off, bing, aha, you want us to marry a cousin. (laughs) Okay, I can do that. I'll just stick to dad's side and go visit the family of Uncle Ishmael. And so what we've just seen This son who was not chosen, Esau, went to the family of the son who was not chosen, Ishmael, in an effort to get the blessing of the chosen, Isaac and Jacob. Esau's doing life here now on his his way, on his terms, for his goals, his ends, in a way that seems fitting to him. This is a display, an example of natural man's religious efforts. I am going to be religious my way that suits my tastes and my morals. I'm going to earn eternal life and the blessing through my actions and my excellence and then feel justified in in being bitter toward God or toward his word or any others who might lovingly try to point me to Christ and grace for eternal life through him. But we know that salvation is on God's terms, isn't it? It is his way, according to his righteousness and his word. We know salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, to the glory of God 
alone. And by the way, just back to this narrative, if, if Esau only married this woman in order to try to, to try to get the blessing back, if Esau only married her to try to get the blessing back and it didn't work, what value does this woman have to him? What might he think of her? Was he loving her by marrying her? Or was he just using her to get something out of her? We know this loving is giving. Loving is giving. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for Now, so far in this chapter, we've seen Isaac give the blessing willingly to Jacob. And now the the true holder, not Isaac, but the true holder of the blessing and the covenant, the one who had the authority to choose Jacob for this promise in the first place, God Almighty is going to give his promise directly to Jacob. So verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. That would have been an over 650-mile journey. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder. Or it could also be translated as a stairway, but either way, it really doesn't matter. People kind of squabble back and forth in that, but it's it's something to go up and down on, okay? So whether a stairway, ladder, but it was set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, behold meaning, wow, look, okay? Direct Hebrew to English translation right there. Wow, look. Not quite, but you get the idea. It says, look at this. Look at that. Whoa, look over there. We get to be amazed with Jacob as he sees each new feature. So behold, a ladder. Behold, angels. They're ascending and descending. And behold, the Lord. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Did Isaac give it? No. Abraham? No. The Lord said, I will give to you the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring, verse 14, shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We know this ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. He says, behold, God says, I am with you. There's that promise again. And we could insert this I again if if we wanted to. I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. Wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. You see a theme there? So here's Jacob. He's running scared from his brother Esau. He's, he's alone along this roadway in the wilderness. Those wild animals and those bad guys are out there. Uh, he decides to lie down and sleep for the night, and he grabs this stone. And it seems like many people think that he used it just as a pillow. There are some who think he was using it, as many did in that place and in those days, These stones would be set up as a place for the gods to come 
and dwell in and with the stone to protect people who were laying nearby. So either way, it doesn't really matter. We know this. Whether it was a pillow or a pagan protector pillar, because God's promise to him wasn't rooted and based in Jacob's prior righteousness anyway, was it? It was not conditional. God didn't say, well, Jacob, you didn't use that as a pillow, which I thought you were going to do, so it's off. No. This is an act of grace. If Jacob was using the stone as a pagan protector pillar thing, God still came to him by grace. And it would be right then thereafter for Jacob to learn and to change and to grow. If God only chose the righteous to receive his grace, no one would ever be saved. Right? There'd be no need for grace. It does say later that the stone had been under his head overnight. So we're going to go with the pillow thing there, okay? But that other use may come in handy to us here really quickly. Now, whether Jacob was trusting in God yet or not, God did reveal himself to him this night, to Jacob. And Jacob sees in this, uh, this ladder, the stairway, he sees this. There is a way to God. There is a pathway between God and man. There's access. And there are angels ascending and descending. There is constant interaction. There is constant providence, constant care from God at his decree and for us. Hebrews 1.14 calls angels God's ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. How cool is that? And then, at the top of this ladder, in this place of authority, the Lord our God. In charge, in control, with his full knowledge, his attention, uh, these things, or at least these things, if not more, these are things that Jacob gets to learn about God that night. And as we read, these are things that we get to learn about God and be reminded about God today. In these verses, we get to see God Also, giving the blessing, the Abrahamic covenant, directly to Jacob. We see this promise from God, uh, the same promise he gave to Isaac. Behold, I am with you. It's important to remember these words also. God says, I will be with you wherever you go. God said, I'm with you wherever you go. God did not say, I'm here, and whenever you get back here, we'll catch up again. That's not it, right? He didn't say, come back to this spot when you're done doing all your things and we'll, we'll compare notes and see how it's going. What he said is, I am with you wherever you go. That ladder and the angels, they're pretty mobile. <laughs> God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present all the time. That's more than mobile. Jacob doesn't quite get it right away, though. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and set it up for a pillar. If it wasn't a pillar last night, now it is. And he poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Uh, but the name of the city was Luz at first. So to our English speaking, it sounds like it got an upgrade overnight, didn't it? So it's Bethel now. 
The name Bethel means the house of God. The house of God. And God certainly was there with Jacob that night. And the next day, when he got up and departed and moved further north, he was still there. And the next day, and the next day, and for the rest of his life. This, this spot, though, sure, certainly was a special place uh, for Jacob. We can certainly understand that. If we saw what Jacob did, we'd probably want to put something there and, and think of a way to worship God, too. But that ladder, and I think Jacob knew this, but it wasn't stuck there. It wasn't stuck there. Maybe we should say it this way. Our access to God, God's presence, God's providence, those things are not bound to a stone pillar on the ground. God certainly didn't need that stone to remember where to drop the ladder. He doesn't need to put a tracker on you like GPS to make sure he knows where you are. And, and it gets even better than that. In John 1.51, Jesus tells Nathaniel, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's him, himself. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, we see that there is one God and there is one mediator, a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. God has made a way to himself. And Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. Verse 20. Jacob then made a vow. After God gives this unconditional promise to him, Jacob makes a vow, saying, if, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, if God will do all these things, then... The Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I don't know what a partial tenth is, if that's like 9%, but he says, I'll give a full tenth to you. Now, what kind of a vow did Jacob just make? This is an if-then statement, isn't it? This is an if-then promise. If you think back to God's covenant promise, when God made this promise to Abraham, do you remember what he did? When traditionally back then, if there was going to be a covenant between two people, they'd, they'd put these animal pieces out and, and they would walk together through this to, to cut a covenant together. And both of them were obliged, obligated to do this thing, to keep this covenant. God walked through that alone, meaning it was unconditional Abraham, I am doing this for you. Unconditional. And when God made the promise to Isaac and then promised this promise to Jacob, were there any conditions that he stated? There's none. Were there any release clauses? No. No. God said he was going to do it. It was as good as done. And now Jacob is giving God an if-then vow. And let's think through what the conditions are. He, here, here are the ifs. If God will be with Jacob, if God will 
keep him in this way, keep him safe and allow him to do what he'd set out to do. If God will meet his needs, like food and clothing, and if God will get him back home in peace, as opposed to in pieces because of Esau, if God will do that, if God will do all these things, which, by the way, that list is less than what God has just unconditionally promised him. But if God will do all these things that Jacob has requested, then, then, Jacob will submit to God. Then God can be Jacob's God. God has to earn the right. You see? If God will do all these things, then that stone Jacob set up, the one that exists because God Almighty spoke the whole universe into existence and holds every piece and molecule together by his own power and will, Well, if God keeps all his promises that Jacob's requesting here, then God can have that stone for his new house. Gee whiz. Thanks, right? Remember, those those stone pillars were regarded in pagan practices as houses for the gods, for, for the person's protection. And if that stone pillar for a house was not enough, but wait, there's more. If God fulfilled Jacob's request, then... God would be the new owner, the recipient of 10% of all of Jacob's possessions at the time of his return. Realize, uh, this promise of a tithe, it's not referring to any decision to become what we might call a faithful tither of any kind of regular paycheck. This is Jacob promising a one-time gift of 10% of his assets at the time of his return. And remember, and this is not by command, but just by offer. Remember, just like any time, and this is true for us too, just like any time that any of us give an offering today, whatever it is that we're giving to God was given to us by him. It all belongs to him. Remember, who's going to give Jacob that land? God's going to give it to him because it's his. So we get to give out of worship, generosity, love, not out of obligation to try to earn anything that God has already given to us by his grace. Praise God for that. God has promised to bless Jacob. And now Jacob is trying to strike a deal with him, in part through a contribution. From out of the blessing, from out of this blessing that God has already promised to him, you see the irony here? And even with all of these amazing promises from Jacob, or we might say, even in spite of these silly, maybe ignorant, still not understanding who he's dealing with, this if-then bargaining from Jacob, even with all of this being what it is, God is going to show Jacob favor. Unmerited favor. By his gracious choice. He said he would. While Jacob was still in the womb, he said he would. Before he ever drew his first breath, God promised us. That's grace. Grace. Remember, Jacob didn't set out on this journey looking for God. He was running from Esau, obeying his mama, and looking for a wife. God came to Jacob. 
Jacob wasn't going to figure this out on his own. Jacob still didn't have it all figured out uh, after this gift of revelation from God. He didn't quite grasp the almightiness of this God almighty that his dad had told him about. God may still be quite a bit smaller in Jacob's mind than he truly is. God may still be a little more local, regional in Jacob's mind. You know, like the the Egyptians have their gods who protect them, and the Canaanites have their gods who protect them. And now this God that talked to me has power over this area, and we're going to mark this out where where he's located. This might be how Jacob has seen this. So let's make sure that we get back here, that kind of a thing. In Jacob's mind, God still may be, you know, one of those slightly more powerful than humans, but, but powerful enough to make things go well when they have the right incentives promised. That kind of a God. And here's some good news. Let me share it with you in the form of a question. Was God's ability limited by Jacob's limited understanding? Was God's almightiness rendered not so mighty by Jacob's less than accurate view? No. God is God. He is sovereign. He is on the throne. Know this, understand this. There, there are people who will say, you know, you might want healing, you might want this, you might want that. And if you have enough faith, God can do this. If you don't have enough faith, well, that's your fault. Christian, God does not need power boosters to be able to do the things that he's strapped and unable to do if you don't give him the energy he needs. That's a weak God. That's little g God. The real God is who he is, regardless of our understanding of him. And he does what he pleases. More good news. Because God is good and righteous, everything he pleases is good and right. We may not always see it that way. In our sin, we may not always agree. But everything he does is good and right. And our gracious, loving, almighty, omnipotent God has just now received a conditional promise from a man he created and chose in order to guarantee a covenant he's already promised unconditionally. Wow, right? Isn't God good (laughs) and patient, long-suffering, Merciful, gracious, loving. It's a good thing. Because we need him to be all those things just the same as Jacob did. We know the word of God tells us that even while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place. Taking the penalty of our sin on himself that we might be saved And the word of God tells us that our God spoke the universe into existence. He holds it together by the word of his power. That he, our God, is all-knowing, all-powerful. He is El Shaddai. That he is everywhere present. He says, behold, I am with you wherever you go. Christ said, I am with you to the end of the age. We know that God is righteous. He is good. He is faithful. He is also just. He is holy. There is no one like him. 
And he rightly has all authority. So, as we learn more and more about who God is, as our understanding of him gets closer and closer to accuracy of who he is, and as we learn more about who we are, as we learn of his grace in our lives, those if-thens, they rightly turn into since-thens. Don't they? Since God is who he is. Since God has loved us and given us eternal life through Christ. Since God has already made the unconditional promise to complete the work that he started in us, to make us like Christ, to make us joint heirs with Christ. Since he has made all these promises by his grace, since all of this is true, then it makes perfect sense to agree with the Apostle Paul when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is reasonable. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, since our God Almighty has saved us, since he is with us and for us, then let's seek to love him and follow hard after him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are all these things. Lord, we thank you that our ability to be recipients of your grace and your love are not contingent on us having everything all figured out. Your choice to love us was not based on how amazing we are, as if your reputation would be improved because we joined your club. Christ humbled himself and took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he suffered death on the cross. He suffered the wrath that we deserve for our sin on himself in our place as our substitute, as our sacrifice. And God, you have given us life. You've given us his righteousness. You've made us your children. God, we, we thank you. We thank you. And I pray, Lord, that these truths would stir our hearts to have a greater love, a greater appreciation, a greater fervency, a greater desire to follow hard after you. May we honor you this way. And God, we thank you that these things and these, these um, even the commands that you give to us, the life that you give to us, that you promise to us, that these things are for our good and for our joy. And so may we run this race and run it with endurance. God, give us eyes and ears to see, to hear, and to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.